Welcome to the panel, RNZ National. We have Sue Bradford and Connor English today. And just a quick word on this before we get to the next uh, topic. Uh, we talked law and order yesterday with Marie Dyberg, KC, on the two new youth justice units that will cater to up to 30 higher needs uh, youth. That's uh, what Labour announced yesterday. But today the government, w- government said they'll announce a new offence specifically targeting ram raids alongside changes to allow 12 and 13 year olds to be charged in the youth court rather than the current family court and a new criminal offence targeting ram raiding, carrying a maximum 10 year sentence. Just a, a word on this around the panel. So your, your top thoughts on this? Um, it seems to be a race to the bottom in terms of trying to attract the law and order vote. Um, there's no need for this from Labour. There's already the law in place. Um, they've already got dreadful issues with, with the youth justice facilities. The idea of creating more of these things doesn't sound great. Um, yeah, they should. It, it's really disgraceful that, that they're chasing the same votes that National and ACT are putting for, um, going for um, in this area. Um, once again attacking people, children actually, children that are the victims of um, choices they haven't had in terms of... They'll get more intensive support, won't they? Going from the uh, family court to the youth court more um, uh, levers available to actually get Yeah, lever, levers like um, being able, having um, electronic bracelets, electronic monitoring, curfews um, all, a whole lot of punitive stuff the ability to put them into facilities I think, um, a whole lot of stuff that's um, geared to punishment rather than rehabilitation or helping going in and um, to what extent those young people in youth facilities are actually helped is, is a very open question at the moment. That's a big no from Sue Bradford, Connor English. Uh, yeah, look, I think people have a sense that they're feeling more unsafe than what they did and, and looking for um, the government to do something about it insofar as they can. Um, you know, there's a social issues, uh, you know, behind every every crime there's a story, isn't there? But um, the reality is people are feeling more unsafe now than they used to. And both parties um, ha- have been trying to address that concern. And um, whether this works or not, I, I don't know. But something needs to change. And the politicians are offering, you know, their suggestions on what needs to change. All right. Uh, the panel, RNZ National, Sue Bradford, Connor English, thank you. Were you stunned by your latest Powerball? Well, I can tell you I was. Uh, I got mine in the post two weeks ago. Shocking. Anyway, research into how electricity retailers treat their customers found consumers remained vulnerable to the whims of power providers. It was a study by FinCap and it looked at how protections for consumers were struggling to pay their power bills were working, finding consumers had little knowledge or trust in consumer guidelines, consumer care guidelines, getting help from contact centres, for example. Tricky. And it often came down to knowing the magic words, what are they? With us is Deborah Hart, Consumer Advocacy Council Chairperson. Uh, Deborah, kia ora. Kia ora to you. Now, consumers remaining vulnerable to the whims of power providers. What were a couple of key findings of note to you? Um, well, you know, that, that um, the service that, that uh, consumers can expect from their retailers is really um, inconsistent. Um, some retailers are doing an absolutely fantastic job in looking after um, their their um, 
their consumers, um, but some are, are really uh, failing. And we heard that retailers can be very inflexible when establishing payment plans for arrears without regard to what's realistic. Um, contact centres could be really, um, you know, really difficult. Um, and, you know, that there were no real controls over how retailers acted during um, emergencies or at any other time. Do you think, Deborah, people find the electricity sector impenetrable over and above other areas of our life or other sectors? Yes, they do. And we, we know um, the electricity price review that was commissioned and gave its report in 2019 said exactly that. But it's really, really difficult um, for, um, for New Zealanders to understand uh, the electricity market and to really make uh, good choices. It's the reason that we were, were set up to advocate uh, for um, residential and small business um, electricity consumers. All right, Sue Bradford, uh, let's bring you in on this. Um, well, it strikes me um, from this that it's very similar what, what's being talked about here to what happens, for example, with people trying to deal with their own cases with working income or ACC, dealing with a power company and um, if you're being cut off or have been cut off and trying to negotiate, very difficult Just to, and depending so much on who you actually hit on the phone or over the counter and more on the phone these days. And, it, and this report just feels so similar to me that unless you've got, if you're somebody whose English isn't great, if you're someone who's feeling desperate and overwhelmed by everything in life, including not being able to pay, pay your power bill or feed your kids or pay the rent, um, you actually need help. But that help is not easy to get. And people that can get advocates um, through budgeting services um, can often find ways through. But people that are trying to look after themselves, it's the hardest thing to do. I think some of those sentiments, Deborah, were reflected in the report, weren't they? Yes, absolutely. And, well, if we have this thing called the Consumer Care Guidelines, they were... Um, you know, put into place by the Electricity Authority. The Electricity Price Review said we needed mandatory, uh, mandatory standards uh, to ensure that vulnerable people uh, were properly looked after. But what we've got is this voluntary set um, of guidelines. And you know, compare it to you know, if you if you were in, um, playing a rugby game, you wouldn't want voluntary. Um, you know, you wouldn't want the rules to be voluntary, you'd want rules. And what we need here is what the Electricity Price Review said what was required. We need strict rules um, and we need oversight by our regulator, the Electricity Authority, and we need penalties um, for those retailers who are non-compliant. And a lot of retailers agree with that. Um, Mercury agrees with it, Flick agrees with it, lots of you know, retailers think that's a really great idea. We need to move to mandatory standards. All right, Connor English. Uh, yeah, well, it's interesting. It's always amazed me that in a country that we generate most of our power from rain that comes out of the sky, um, that it does cost so much. I mean, our, our power bill is, um, yeah, I... It seems a hell of a lot of money to me. Um, I broke a new record. We broke a new record with our power. I, I don't have. I guess I don't have the permission to say what it was, but it was. <laughs> it was quite something, Connor. Yeah. So, so I get that companies have to, um, you know, be paid for the cost of producing it and 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 make a return. But it's um, does seem to be pretty expensive for something that we should have a 
comparative natural advantage. But the other issue that Deborah's talking about is, um, you know, just engagement with power companies when you have issues to, to, to deal with. Um, I think in a lot of a lot of sectors, you know, you, you do have voluntary codes because you don't want to stifle innovation that sometimes mandatory codes can prevent because, it, the, 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 you know, you sort of boxed in. Um, but if these guys aren't playing ball and they've had a voluntary code for a while uh, and it's still a big problem, well, maybe they should move to mandatory standards. I mean, that's... Deborah? Well, mandatory standards would mean an even playing field. Yeah. And electricity, yeah. Um, we know, is, you know, an essential service. We all, we all need it. Mm. Uh, we also know from uh, surveying that we've done, uh, 52% of residential consumers think electricity will become unaffordable for them. Unaffordable. We cannot possibly be in that situation. Uh, and we know from data that was out just a couple of weeks ago, 110,000 households signing paying their electricity bills just really very, very difficult. Goodness. That's not acceptable. Yeah, it's really, um, yeah, not cheap. Just before we go, just briefly, uh, Deborah, uh, said in some cases you said it did come down to who answered the phone or knowing the magic words. I'm interested. What do you mean? Yeah, well, um, what Simcat told us through um, their advisors is um, one of them said it would, and I'm quoting, it would it would depend very much on who you got at a call centre. A lot of times, to a client, doesn't know what to ask for or what to say. They won't say they're in hardship just they don't have much money, and they don't get the same response that we do. And um, you know, and another one said it's about half and half. Some are getting support and help. Some are getting mucked around, um, and that's just not uh, good enough. We need really a consistent approach by. Um, electricity retailers, so it doesn't matter who you go to, um, you're going to be you know, really well looked after by minimum consumer protection. All right. Deborah Hart, kia ora. Appreciate your time today. That's Deborah Hart, Consumer Advocacy Council uh, Chairperson. Uh, really enjoying your feedback on all uh, topic. Here's one here, actually. I was a 13-year-old in a youth home from 13 to 17 years old under the care of SIFs as it was then. Facilities don't work. I left better connected and wiser as a criminal, says uh, a text here. Various, we're, going to, we're going to come back to this actually uh, later in uh, the panel on another day. Uh, but to this, this is interesting. Less than three months out from New Zealand's 2023 election, large political donations. They've been making headlines. This from a piece on the RNZ site yesterday, making headlines due to the scale of donations for this election year. Donations to both the ACT Party and the National Party have significantly outpaced large-scale contributions to the other groups or parties. So is the contribution size a cause for concern or is it not? And is there a relationship between fundraising and winning? Uh, one of the authors is Max Rashbrook. He's Senior Associate, Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University. Max, kia ora. Kia ora, what? In the first six months of this year, the main parties have already received more than $4 million in donations, over $20,000. Does this represent a new level? 
Yeah, I, th I think we're seeing um, sort of fundraising in large donations really stepping up. Um, and what's particularly striking is the, you know, some of the individual sums involved. So um, the National Party has just received a donation of $500,000 from one person, um, which seems to be a record. But what we're also seeing is a growing imbalance um, between the right and left. If you go back to the, you know, since the last general election, the um, parties on the centre-right act and national have raised about $12 million in donations, including some very large ones, while uh, Labour and the Greens have only raised about $2.5 million. So the right is out-fundraising out the left by about 5 to 1. Max, why do you think, and I know that uh, panellists will have views definitely on this, why do you think... Or what's your sense on why some are reaching into their pockets like perhaps never before? Well, if you look at the, the big donations, so these are donations over $20,000, um, I mean, they've, they've always, you know, favoured the, the right and the centre-right to some extent. Um, but what I'm hearing from talking to people in the know is that the business community is, um, you know, still very unhappy about our COVID response, which, you know, even though it saved tens of thousands of dollars, uh, tens of thousands of lives, they perceived to have had a dollar cost in terms of, you know, New Zealand being shut down for too long. Um, and they're also, you know, unhappy with some of the other government's um, regulatory proposals. And so I'm told that it has, quote, never been easier, unquote, uh, to get large donations out of the business community if you're fundraising for National Enact at the moment. Never been easier. Interesting. All right, uh, Sue Bradford. Uh, yes, cheers, Max. It is incredibly interesting, and it strikes me from this that we're heading even more towards what I think of as the American model, where it's all about how many dollars you have, um, and, and without them it's very difficult to run any kind of fair political campaigning. Um, it also seems that this, this gap between the funding on right and left, so to speak, um, is exacerbated and, and exemplifies in a way the ever-widening gap between the very rich in this country and, and the moderately well-off and the very poor. That This gap just gets wider and wider and the policies that the rich are paying for are only going to um, solidify that. Um, and, the way, and the fact that even Labour, Chris Hipkins and Labour, despite some of their proud history, will not seem to contemplate any form of wealth tax, even though they're not obviously not being funded very well by the right, but by business, um, they still seem to be falling into that same trap where big money um, buys where, where the policies go. And this country just continues to go further and further to, to the right, whichever area of policy you're looking at. All right, do you want to stay there, Max, and we'll bring uh, Connor in and you can respond to both. Uh, yeah, look, firstly, we're not the USA or, or Australia. I mean, they're, they're dramatically different political environments than, than what we are. Uh, I don't think the donations has any impact at all on um, on policy. If you look at um, the, the RAM raid policy that's just been announced today by Labor and previously by National, I don't think that's as a result of um, corner dairies making donations to uh, Labor now and National last week. Um, I think that the critical thing that uh, politicians look at is votes and they look at what policies they think that they are aligned with themselves are going to be attractive to, to voters who they want to attract to vote for them because it's votes that are the, the currency of elections, not money. Uh, and the other thing I think, the second thing you have to do around an election is once you get some votes, um, you've got to negotiate a coalition agreement. 
and it's the other parties that you're co- that you're coalescing with or potentially coalescing with that you've got to convince to come on your side. And the currency there isn't money; it is policy. So Max. if you look at 2017, where um, National, who I presume had the most donations that year, you know, got about 45 percent uh, on election night. Labor um, got about 36 percent. Um, top who had about, you know, Gareth Morgan put millions into it, got 2.4%. Okay, New Zealand First, point, I don't know yeah, what their donations were, point. but, you know, it, it, it wasn't the out... The, the, I don't okay. think there's a correlation Vote's between... Votes not money. Votes not money. Uh, Sue's yeah. dying to come back in, but Max, what, what, <laughs> what, what, what of that? Uh, it's actually votes the currency. It's not money. Well, it is votes <clears throat> that matter, but um, money's quite important for getting those votes. I mean... It's, you know, it's not the only thing. I mean, if you've got, you know, a very weak leader and a weak message, then, you know, all the money in the world won't help you. But the international evidence is that, you know, all other things being equal, the more money a political party has, the more votes it gets. I mean, those two, that that correlation absolutely um, does exist. And the other thing, you know, just in terms of sort of um, buying policy, well, look, I mean, I, I don't think it's it's sort of as crude as that necessarily. You're right. But, you know, we interviewed Lisa Marriott and I at Victoria University, interviewed a lot of donors last year. And, you know, some of them said, well, explicitly, you know, a big donation makes it easier get a meeting with the ministers and others talked about, you know, all the visits they had from prime ministers and party leaders and politicians popping around for a chat about life. I, I definitely think that large donations can give people a level of access to politicians and potentially influence that yeah. the rest of us simply can't enjoy. But, but I think you're, you're making the assumption here that politicians are stupid and dumb. I mean, just because someone talks to them doesn't mean they're going to agree with the politicians going to agree with them. I mean, politicians make up their own minds, parties make up their own minds, and I don't think they do it because they just met someone. You know, so I don't, I don't quite buy... I think, I think you're doing a disservice to our politicians. I think they're far brighter than All right. what you were giving S- them. Stay there, for. Max, and uh, let's bring Sue in. Um, Max is absolutely right that money, and Connor, that, that money on its own can't buy votes, and you only have to look at Kim.com and Mana in 2014, $3 million or more spent to mm, buy votes, mm. a, a total disaster. So, yes, there's a whole lot of infrastructure and policy and people that matter in terms of political parties. But the correlation between the ability of parties to run decent campaigns to win those votes to, for that part of the population whose vote they're going after. I've been on too many campaign committees myself. <laughs> Every dollar counts. Um, I know that from my time in the Greens. Right. And um, there's no way around it. Every do- and when you look at parties you're up against who have multiple, multiple um, extensions yeah. of money compared to you, what what they can achieve with that is is incredible. And yes, there definitely is a connection between those who give and those who enact the policies. Okay, yeah. so a, a real difference of opinions here. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for well, that. The, uh, well, the polls just... are the po- interesting, though, Wallace. That, that whatever the donations are, um, the polls are about even Stevens between the two main parties at the moment. So go figure. Hey, Max, I've got an analogy to put to you uh, then. Uh, it might be a bit sort of uh, strange, but I want to put it, bring it anyway. In Formula One, because I've been loving my Formula One at the moment, they decided to do something super radical. In fact, it was very controversial. Spending tens of millions of dollars on a car meant you couldn't compete with the likes of Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton. So Formula One introduced a spending cap. And it's really changed the whole 
Formula One game. It's levelled now. So you Williams has a chance. Is Can that analogy be applied to politics? Yeah, I think it can. And to some extent we do, in a very limited sense, we do have that in New Zealand and it's a positive thing. Mm. There's a cap on how much money political parties can spend during the election campaign, you know, so the, the three months in the run-up to an election. And, and I think that's very sensible and it restrains some of the worst excesses that you might see in the US. The problem is that it only applies for those three months. So, you know, parties with more resources can spend huge amounts of money, you know, building the databases and doing the polling and the focus grouping and the strategies and employing people. Um, And the spending limit also only applies to advertising, um, not all the other kinds of spending. But look, I think limits like that are useful. I think the analogy with Formula One holds. I mean, I also think we could go further. And as the independent electoral review just recommended, we could have a cap on how much money an individual can give to a political party of about $30,000 and then provide incentives for smaller donations. So but like giving to a charity, you know, you get some of the money back if you give to a political party, say less than $1,000. So that we shift to a model that's based less on large amounts of money from a small number of donors towards one that's based on small amounts of money from a large number of donors, which I think would be more democratic and probably fairer. Really interesting stuff. Max Kiora, thank you uh, for your time. That's Max Rashbrook, their senior associate in the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria uh, University. It's 29 past for a bit of your feedback, actually. Um, Here's one. Youth offenders. I'm 75 now. At the age of 15, I was a youth offender. Numerous offences over a very short period. Got caught. Got caught. I went before the magistrate. I was anticipating a borstal sentence. The judge put the fear of God into me. Then he said, if you ever come before me again, you will go to jail. Then he told me to go away and make something of my life. So I did. A good long career. So absolutely these kids, uh, put these kids before a court that can deliver the punishment, but give judges the discretion to decide what will be the best. So yes to the youth court with strong potential sentences.